this is Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlottesville Tomorrow is a nonprofit organization engaging the public on critical quality of life issues so we make informed choices for our community's future. Visit us on the web at seavilletomorrow.org. Are you able to hear in the back of the room? Okay, great. How does government currently work in Charlottesville? That was the question put to four panelists on February 11, 2018, at the first of two events on how decisions are made at the local level, sponsored by Charlottesville Tomorrow and the League of Women Voters. The event was held at the McIntyre Room in the Jefferson-Madison Regional Library's Central Branch. The event began with an introduction from the President of the League of Women Voters. Welcome. I am Karen Yates, President of the League of Women Voters of the Charlottesville area, a nonpartisan political organization that encourages informed and active participation in government. In the aftermath of the events in Charlottesville this past August, many citizens have asked us to hold educational programs that would inform citizens about how the local city government is structured today and how it might be structured in the future. This afternoon is the first event co-sponsored by Charlottesville Tomorrow and the League of Women Voters that will address these topics. The second event will be held on Sunday, February 25th, at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, where we will be able to accommodate more people. Although we knew there was an interest in city civics, we didn't realize how great that was. At this time, I would like to introduce Brian Wheeler and Andrea Douglas, who volunteered to be co-facilitators for today's panel discussion. Andrea Douglas is the executive director of the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. Brian Wheeler is the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Brian? Thank you, Kim. Well, on behalf of Charlottesville Tomorrow, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. We've partnered with the League of Women Voters for many years on everything from our education coverage to um, voter guides and candidate forums over the years. If you're not familiar with our nonprofit news site, you can find our content on our website, in our email newsletters, and we have a sign-up sheet out in the hall. And also, thanks to a unique partnership with the Daily Progress, all of our reporting is also in your daily newspaper. Um, over the past 12 years, we've also covered every city council election. So I'm especially pleased to be here and, and have Charlottesville tomorrow be a part of uh, this event today. This also happens to be the last event where I'll be representing Charlottesville tomorrow. Um, in one week, I will start a new job as director of communications for the city of Charlottesville, and I'm really excited about that. So for me personally, I can't think of a better way to sort of transition between these two jobs than to uh, engage our citizens in a dialogue about the future of city government. And uh, next I'll ask Andrew Douglas to come up.
Um, good afternoon. So as has been mentioned, I am the executive director of the African American Heritage Center. Um, we have just started our fifth year of operation. It feels like we've been here for a little while longer. But our goal at the Heritage Center is to demonstrate the um, important um, the important um, opportunities in, that African Americans have given to the city of Charlottesville, both locally, nationally, and globally. Um, and we utilize our space. Our space is, our, is the old 1926 high school, the African American high school. And we've turned that into an auditorium that is a site that we hope that Charlottesville wants to come to to talk about some of the most important questions of how it defines itself. And over the course of the last year, we have been the site for some of those conversations. Um, some people have said to me, why are you that site? And it, because we understand the notion that African-American history is American history, that the contributions made by people of color in this community as early as 1865 that happened through the Jefferson School helped to shape the 20th century. And we want to be the site where we're thinking about how Charlottesville moves into and incorporates our 21st century thinking. So um, having this conversation here today and being able to be that site on the 25th is really important to us. So thank you all for engaging today, and I'll see you on the 25th. So Andrea and I are going to be co-facilitators today, and we're going to invite our panelists to each speak for five to ten minutes, and then in the second hour, we're going to turn it over to you for your audience questions. We have a microphone, and we'd like to have you speak into the mic so that we can record your question, and if you'd be willing, we'd love to have you say your name so we know who you are in the community. Um, but we'll pass that mic around, and when it comes to that time, if you raise your hand, one of our colleagues will bring the microphone over to you. Um, the forum is being recorded, as I mentioned, and um, we will make that available on Charlottesville Tomorrow's website in an audio format for people that couldn't be here. Um, we'd like to introduce our panel. To my immediate right is um, Rich Schrager. He's a professor of the University of Virginia School of Law. Next to him is Charles Barber, Charlottesville's first African-American mayor during 1974-1976. Next to Mr. Barber is Bitsy Waters, um, another Charlottesville mayor during the period 1988 to 1990. And then um, next to her is Tom Walls, executive director of the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership. Thank you all very much for being with us this afternoon for this important conversation. Um, Mr. Schrager, let's start with you. Um, well, we'd like to start out by briefly sharing some background on the structure of city government and um, the constraints of our decision-making. Can you talk a little bit about sure, that? Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been writing about uh, state and local government law for a long time, more than 15 years, and um, it's, it's nice to finally get an audience for that, <laughs> for that conversation. Um, I will... If you'll forgive me, plug my book, City Power, which just got published, so suddenly it's, it's of some interest, which is just great. In the law school, I'm looked at as, uh, upon as a little strange because I don't think about only the Supreme Court of the United States. I also think about Charlottesville city government and state and local government. So uh, I'll just say a few things, and, and hopefully um, I, I won't turn this into a law school class. Um, uh, 
I think there are two aspects of city government that we should be uh, focused on when we think about the structure of local government uh, and and possible reforms of that. The first is what's the the place of local government in the in the structure of uh, federal, state, and local government, and then the second is the internal the internal structure of the local government uh, system here in Charlottesville. Um, uh, I want to say a little bit about the first because I think it's important because we often uh, don't quite understand necessarily who exercises power in a city, uh, and often the folks that are exercising power are not, in fact, the elected officials of the city. They're actually other, other officials, either in the state government or in the federal government. So uh, I would just start with, with, with the, the basic idea that cities are considered to be, uh, and all municipalities, localities, counties also are included in this, towns, uh, all across the country are considered to be creatures of the state. Uh, that is a, as a matter of federal constitutional law. Uh, the federal constitution does not treat cities as any different than, uh, for example, the the Department of Motor Vehicles. That is, it's, uh, the cities are convenient agencies of the states that allow them to exist. Um, that was not always the case. There were ideas in the beginning of the, uh, in the 19th century and even in the early part of the 20th century that cities should have some kind of inherent right of local self-government. But that is not what we have as a constitutional rule, at least as a federal matter. Now, as a state law matter uh, in states across the country, uh, many states, and the Commonwealth of Virginia is one of them, has, has, has granted certain kinds of powers to lo local governments, and you all know this intuitively. Um, and they do it in different ways, some through state constitutions and th some through state statutory law. So within state law, uh, local governments often get to exercise certain kinds of powers. Uh, those kinds of powers uh, and the range of powers that's, uh, that localities and cities and counties and towns get to exercise depend a lot on the, the particular grants in the state constitution or in the state statutes. Um, in, in Virginia, we have something called Dillon's Rule. Maybe I'll say a little bit about that. Uh, uh, many states have what's called Home Rule. The differences between those two regimes is not as great as one might think. Uh, it turns out certain kinds of grants of power are accompanied with certain kinds of restrictions in all states, uh, uh, all 50 states. But let me just say, Dillon's rule was, is, is often mistaken. It's named for a guy named John Dillon, who was a jurist in the 19th century. Um, and uh, he was concerned at the time about uh, the corruption of particular indu industrializing cities and giveaways to corporate interests, essentially. And so he proposed through tre uh, treatises that he wrote and through some, some opinions that uh, localities, cities in this case, should only have the powers that are expressly granted to them by the state, and that any of those grants should be narrowly construed by the judiciary. So Dillon's rule is a rule of judicial construction. It tells courts what to do. It doesn't just exist out there. There's no place in the Virginia Code that says, hey, we're a Dillon's rule state, right? It's that, that it's a rule of judicial construction. So when judges read state statutes, what they're supposed to do is read them narrowly against local power. 
Many states had Dillon's rule in, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, end of the 19th century, but then many states shifted to home rule. And what home rule was, was a grant of power that was more general. Still a grant of power from the state, and sometimes, again, in state constitutions or in state statutes. And the idea of that was that we don't want localities to have to keep going to the state legislature every time they want to get anything done. And so we'll give them a general grant, and we'll read it relatively broadly to do all the things that you need to do to operate your town or city or county. The difference between these two regimes is really a matter of attitude. It's really a matter of attitude because there are many general grants of authority in the Virginia Code that give general powers to the city of Charlottesville and other cities in the Commonwealth. Many general grants. And the question is only, does the judiciary read those broadly or narrowly? So the difference between a home rule city in another state and a, and a Dillon's rule city in, in Virginia is not as great as one might think. But there is a difference in attitude, and that difference in attitude is that uh, many folks say, oh, we're Dillon's rule, we can't do that, or we shouldn't do that, or we'll get sued, or something like that. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of hesitancy. Appropriate, because the judiciary might be skeptical of certain exercises of power. Now, there are other restrictions on, on local power, too. For example, there's usually in most states what's called a private law exception. You're not supposed to, to regulate or pass laws that, that deal with private law subjects. Those are things like tort, property, um, um, uh, marital relations, domestic relations, things like that. Uh, you're not supposed to pass uh, cr uh, certain kinds of criminal laws. Those are, again, restricted to the state. The other big issue, and this is nationwide, and not just in Virginia, but all over, and even in home rule jurisdictions, is that states can easily preempt local laws. Preemption is a word that you should get to know, and you should say it to everybody <laughs> that you can around the Commonwealth. Preemption is a crisis, and the reason I say that is not just because I think cities should exercise more power, but because what's happening across the country is that state legislatures have decided that local governments can't be trusted to do anything. And what they're doing is state legislatures are regularly preempting, and what that means is they pass legislation that overrides local legislation. Now, sometimes that's appropriate. We can think about circumstances and talk about when that is. Sometimes it's not. But what has happened with this preemption explosion, especially in the last uh, decade or half a decade, is that any home rule grant or any broad grant of authority that's in the state codes, in, again, across the country, is being narrowed by the state legislature overriding Lots of, in lots of specific areas. And we have our own specific areas that you can think of. What, what that means is that the locality is not able to legislate in that area. Only the state can legislate in that area. What, what is crucially important for us when we're thinking about the, local, the, the structure of local government, the structure of state and local relations, is that much of what we would like to do or want to do, whatever, we're, whatever policies we're thinking about, much of those policies are made, in our case, in Richmond. That is, the, legis the General Assembly is the location for lots of exercises of power, uh, and the, the range of powers that the city itself can exercise are relatively narrow in lots of ways across lots of, lots of examples, and we can talk about those examples. 
there are also federal law, right, that kicks in here too. So that's another layer of law. We can talk about that as well if you'd like. But um, federal law also kicks in and overrides local law in many, in many, many cases. Again, there are good reasons for state and federal law to, to uh, preempt local law. Uh, but I think uh, there has to be a balance, and I, would, I, I tend to advocate for a balance that's a little more local protective. But for our purposes, it's really important to know what the limits of local authority are under state law, because then you can actually address those limits in Richmond, in the state legislature. So let me, let me move quickly then to the internal, we can talk more about that, to the internal governance of the city. Um, um, as you know, we have a council manager structure here. Um, that is the majority uh, structure for, for, for small and mid-sized cities, municipalities, uh, counties have a similar structure, though, board of supervisors. That's the majority structure across the country. Bigger cities usually uh, often have what's called a strong mayor form of government, which would be a, uh, where you have a directly elected mayor. Um, in a council manager structure, there is no, we, we know from civics that you have an executive, a legislature, and a judiciary. In a council manager structure, we don't have those. <laughs> what we have is a council that acts as the executive, acts as the legislature, and sometimes acts in quasi-judicial manner also, right, because they're the last... In land use things, for example, they make quasi-judicial judgments. There's a judiciary out there, too. But we do not have a singular executive that exercises power. The mayor is elected among the, the, the folks on the council, and that person speaks for the council to the extent that the council wants them to. But the, but the council itself acts as the executive. It's, that is, it's a multiple executive. Now, you can imagine why that might be tricky <laughs> to have a number of people all ex exercising what looks a little bit like executive power. The other thing about the council, the manager structure, is that a professional manager is, the, uh, uh, is uh, uh, hired and appointed by the council, is supposed to be responsive to the council, but the manager actually exercises the kind of executive authority you might imagine a mayor might. Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, use. And that means <laughs> it's not quite clear, right? I hesitate. Got caught up there. Why? Because the city manager doesn't have political authority. He's managerial authority, right? So it's a little bit confusing, actually, about who is supposed to do what in these kinds of systems. And often mayors, mayors get frustrated and they say things like, the buck doesn't stop here, go see the city manager. And the city manager gets frustrated and says, well, I can't engage in the political question that you're trying to get me to answer. You have to go to, to those folks. So there are some issues about that form of government that we can also talk about. The strong mayor uh, has its own uh, 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 pluses and minuses, and we can talk about those as well. Lots of cities, even with strong mayors, have divided executive authority anyway, uh, uh, more so than you might think, uh, because they have different officials that are, that are uh, elected separately from the mayor. In any case, all of this is done through the city charter and, again, through Virginia law. That is, the, the city of Charlottesville... Uh, gets their charter uh, approved by the General Assembly. The General Assembly is the origins of power for any city, locality, town, county, 
and they get to make those decisions. We have their structures to allow us, the, allow the citizens of a city to have input into that. But at the end of the day, the charter is state law. It is the law of the Commonwealth, and that's what dictates to us what we do. Um, uh, so I, I want to leave you just real quickly with the following, which is the capacity for Charlottesville citizens and the, and the city council and, and, uh, to self-govern, to govern ourselves. That capacity is, is uh, both a, a function of our internal ability to do this, to, to function and produce good government, but it's also very much a function of what the state is doing, what the federal government is doing, it, doing and, and what neighboring jurisdictions are doing, right? We are, we are not an autonomous political entity. Uh, what we are is, is uh, an instrument of other political entities. And so when we're thinking about what it is that uh, uh, policies we want to pursue or not pursue, a lot of that is coming from somewhere else, not necessarily from the council itself, but from the structure of the city government and the structure of federal, state, and local relations. Thank you. My name is Charles Barber, B-A-R-B-O-U-R. I think the professor has cut the whole waterfront. <laughs> I would like to say I was part of what he was referring to, the council who elected the city manager, as the, the professor referred to. And the council, the buck stopped with the council, even though the city manager run the city. He's in charge of everything, but the buck stopped with the council. Um, I was part of that from 70 to 78. And we elected one of the great city manager back in 1971. And on council, we've done a lot of things because we were just coming out of segregation. And so that was the opportunity for many changes. And my council that I served on, we done a lot of things that were unique to Charlottesville because it was all going from segregation to desegregation. The bus service, the mall, I was fortunate enough to vote on the two votes for them all. I was one of the two. I was fortunate enough to dedicate them all in 1976. I was fortunate enough to dedicate it in those swimming pools in Charlottesville, dedicate Mead Avenue pool and Washington Park pool. Lady Bird Johnson and I planted two trees. So I'm part in all of the park, um, swimming pools in Charlottesville. <laughs> And when, in 1970, when I went on the council, we were still functioning under the segregation rule that was one African American on the school board. And I thought, something wrong with that picture. So I nominated a second African American to the school board, and that created a big stir because it had been traditionally just one African American on the school board. So today, you look around, you got many you know, things that really changed the rest of history. The bus system used to run up and down Main Street, the Personal Avenue, and they would come to the city for funds to help finance the, the buses per year. And we said, wait a minute, something wrong with that picture. So why not send the buses into the community where people live, and today that's what you have. A lot of changes took place to 1970 with our council. It used to be the African-American bus owner could live in the heart of the city. And yet you, anyone could build a 
of service station garage next door to African American house in the city because that was the rule. We changed those rules. We rezoned so that could never happen again. And of course, I was one of the few African Americans who moved out of the core of the city into a, a white neighborhood, and all of my white neighbors, they left. So there I was again. I was, had my own little community for a while. <laughs> I was a, uh, when I, in 1968, African American ran for city council as independent, and he lost. In 1970, the Democrat Party realized there was some value in having the African-American votes. So five people came to my house one night about 10 o'clock at night and wanted me to up city council. I'm not sure. I ever said yes, but I, I was so late. But my, <laughs> they was talking. I was so tired. They was, you know, just dozing. And they thought I said yes. <laughs> so I, next morning I realized, hey, you, you could think what you up city council. And I said yes. I, I'm not sure I said that, but I was dozing. I was so tired. But nevertheless, I ran in the primary, and I won. And the first election, 1974, that was a cliffhanger. We have six precincts. Seven precincts was in. I was trailing like, like 200 votes. I thought I'd lost. On my way down to confession speech, we got down to the headquarters, friends, flight. My running mate came and said, Congratulations. And I said, For what? I won by 83 votes. The next time I ran, I, I won a couple of 300 votes. But I just want to say that was a big change. Today, we have an open election, and you know, we have many people running. So I'm very happy and blessed to be a part of the changes that have taken place in Charlottesville. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. It really is nice to um, hear that recounted. It, it was, in fact, a, a time of change back when you served us. Uh, for me, it'll be 30 years this spring since I was elected to city council and became mayor on my first day on the job. And it was, as many have said, uh, a steep learning curve. Lots of things, as, as many of you know, have changed a lot since then, but our form of government is basically the same, as you said. But what I'd like to do is, uh, in the next few minutes, highlight a few characteristics of our form of government today and offer a few examples of how those played out during the time I was mayor and on the council. So local government, and we heard that there are several levels, is local government officials are the ones closest to the people. And people tend to look at local government to solve all community problems, even though their powers are limited. It's the job of councils to listen, to figure out what they can and can't do, and then, whenever they can, if they're inclined, to lobby other levels of government or private players if the city can't accomplish something on its own. Our city council has five members elected to serve four-year terms. We serve staggered terms with elections held for some seats every two years to provide both change and continuity. All candidates run at large rather than in individual wards or districts. So a Charlottesville City Council member is elected to represent the interests of all people in the city. 
The vast majority of citizens never come and speak at council meetings. On every agenda item, council members try to consider the full range of views in the community as expressed in elections, conversations, public comments, and other forums, combine those with their own views, and make what they think is the best decision in that particular instance. Every new council elects a mayor for two years. That person is chosen to be the main spokesperson and figurehead and ribbon cutter uh, for the city to represent us at key events and chair city council meetings. The mayor has no special powers, as we've heard, beyond those shared by all five council members. When mayors speak as the mayor rather than as an individual, the expectation is that they will represent the views of the council as a whole. The city council hires and supervises only one staff member the city manager. The city manager is responsible for the hiring and performance of all other employees. If council members have an issue with something happening within a department, they're supposed to take it to the city manager, not go directly to that department. Otherwise, you have a very confusing chain of command. Five council members uh, among the other confusions. Uh, the city manager and staff run the city day to day. They deal with our streets, buses, garbage, water and sewer, parks, policing, and delivering social services. The city manager is the chief operating officer for the enterprise we know as city government and keeps the, the city running. Against this background of ongoing city programs and services, it's the job of the council to set major goals and priorities for the city and pursue community priorities. The council adopts policies that guide how the community develops physically, that's zoning, and a host of other policies that guide the operation of city government. Council decides what tax rates to set for the community and how those tax dollars should be spent. The manager and his or her staff also do all the staff work for the city council, preparing background memos, reports. They make recommendations when appropriate for council action, and sometimes council agrees with those recommendations, and sometimes they don't and vote otherwise. So city councils do have substantial powers, but as you have already heard, in our system of government, there are also many constraints on what city government can do. There's the problem of the Dillon Rule, which says local governments can only do what the state gives them power to do, and I would say, it was my experience, that it's somewhat stingy with those powers. Um, there's the constraint of our independent city status, where cities are separate from counties, uh, something not found in other parts of the country. We're a small city, only 10 square miles, with a major university in the middle. While we have many shared services and joint agreements with the county and the university, we also struggle with the costs of duplication of expensive services like schools and fire departments and with a large state institution in our midst that doesn't pay taxes and isn't subject to city land use laws. And finally, we have the constraint of state and federal governments that have substantially reduced their financial support for schools, affordable housing, and other services. City government does not have the financial resources to make up for all those deficits. 
Now, let me offer a few quick examples of how some of these characteristics played out during the time I was on council. So for my first characteristic, if you will, it's the council's job to figure out what they can and can't do and lobby others um, if, if their powers are limited. Very shortly after the council I served on was elected, our city was struck with a crack cocaine epidemic. This was out of nowhere. We had not spoken a word about crack cocaine during the campaign. None of us really, frankly, knew anything about it, and yet all of a sudden the city council chambers were loaded with people for whom this was a very serious concern in the lives of individuals and neighborhoods. And so this was one where... We had to hurry up to speed. We also learned that we were limited in what we could do. We could obviously direct social services and to some extent policing to try to help with this locally. But that was an example of where, not unlike the opioid crisis today, we had to move to the state and federal level to say, woo, this is something really big and we need help. For my second example, um, it happened that the height of the AIDS epidemic was also occurring during the time I was on city council. And we had a local nonprofit group that wanted to set up a residential home for people who were seriously ill, had no other place to go. And so that, that case was made. On the other side was the neighborhood where this house to, was to be located. And the neighborhood was very upset about that and came to council and articulated a lot of concerns about their safety and security. So this was one where uh, the city council is having to represent the interests of all the people. You had to listen to both sides. I can tell you we did, in the end, approve the, the permit for the house to be located there, and I'm happy to say there were not any problems in that neighborhood for um, the decades, really, after that, that that house operated. But that's a, an example of the balancing interests. The, an example of when the mayor is speaking as mayor and for the council um, it came to mind to me, I mean, we all know about traffic on 29 North, which has been an issue in this community. It was being very actively talked about for a decade before I ran. It is still being actively talked about. But during the time I was on council, we did have a very extended negotiation between the city, the county, the university, and the state about what to do about that. Came up with a five-point plan after much struggling, several pieces of which have been have actually happened, some of which have been taken off the table. But the key here is that that was an instance where it was really critical that when I spoke publicly, I was speaking for the council and, and, and the staff and the community about what the city's interests were in this, in this package. And so, I mean, I have said to people considering do they want to go for mayor when they're a council member, I say sometimes if you have a strong cause you really want to advocate for, you might not want to be the mayor because you are in a position where when you say things, it is taken to be more what the council thinks, if you will, than if you're just an individual council member and you can advocate for it. So then a fourth example, which I think is one that's very much on people's minds these days, is council can set major goals and policies for the city and pursue community priorities. In our case, we, one of many, was to prioritize the revitalization of downtown. And as Charles has said, the mall had been built some 10 years earlier, but it was not a lively place. And so our council, to try to advance that, um, 
Oh, I did want to just say to you, I was teaching at UVA at that time, and every year I would say to my class of students, how many of you have ever been to downtown Charlottesville? And I can tell you, out of a class of 40 or 50 kids, one or two hands went up. So it lets you know it was a very different mall than it is now. So for our piece, which was only a piece of a very long thing that started with your vote and ribbon cutting and then just kept going to today, I might add, um, we built the Water Street parking garage, despite a number of people saying it was not necessary. And, of course, we've since expanded it, and now we're thinking of building another parking garage. We lured the Discovery Museum to downtown into the building they're now in. With The city happened to own it, and we rented it to them for a dollar a year. We supported the Redevelopment and Housing Authority acquiring the old CSX rail yard for some expansion of the mall to the east, and we worked with the business community to start Fridays After Five and other downtown programs. Uh, so all of these were council uh, and staff collaborations to advance what, what at that time was a major community priority, which was let's get this mall going. So finally, as to constraints on what city government can do, and I had this, we did not compare notes, any of us, so I had this already. I'm sad to say that 30 years ago, we were starting to deal with the federal government shrinking its support for public housing, leaving both housing and maintenance needs short of funds, a problem that has now grown in our community to crisis proportions. The expansion of the University of Virginia into city neighborhoods posed a significant threat to a number of our neighborhoods. Joint planning was our only tool. I am happy to say we had some success there, and some of the, some of the lines that were created at that time have still held pretty well. Um, obviously, we get private development that's, that's also associated with, with the university. But... Um, and, of course, the constraints on what city government can and can't do is illustrated today in what we can and can't do about our, our statues in public parks, our rules about guns in public spaces, and requiring developers to build affordable housing. So that, this is something that we're all very aware of today. And I think at that point I'm just going to kind of pause and say, that's it for now, and I look forward to your presentation and to our discussion. Thank you. So we've had now a renowned scholar and expert on how cities are run and uh, two mayors who have been community later, leaders for decades, and now a guy has lived here for 15 months. <laughs> Uh, I'm Tom Walls. I'm the executive director of the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership at UVA. I, I, succeeded, I succeeded Bob Gibson, who you, many of you know. He's in the back. Um, Sorensen Institute uh, runs programs, uh, the purpose of which are to sort of improve the quality of political life um, in Virginia so that uh, it works better and the people who represent us represent us better. Can you hear my phone ringing? <laughs> Uh, the, uh, it, uh, we have five programs. Uh, the, uh, we're an unusual animal at the University of Virginia. Uh, our programs are not courses for the most part for which you get academic credit. Um, they're, they're really leadership training programs. Uh, we have a high school program, uh, a college program, something called emerging leaders program for people who are starting out in careers in government and, um, uh, a candidate training program, which is precisely what it sounds like, um, where people uh, who think they might want to run for something 
uh, come, and we bring in consultants uh, from both sides of the aisle uh, to teach them. Um, and uh, it's it's really gratifying to see uh, these you know just activated citizens decide they're going to do something about it, and then they do. Uh, and then our largest program is called the Political Leaders Program. Um, we take about 36 people from around uh, the state of Virginia, um, a diverse group in every way, including um, what part of this. We want them from every part of the state uh, and all along the ideological spectrum. And uh, we go around the state uh, for 10 months to different places uh, and examine what's going on in cities and counties uh, and state government. Uh, uh, and, and there's two things going on there. One is that they just learn a lot about the, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia um, and, and policy and the problems, the practical problems that local government, state government face. Uh, the other thing that's going on is we take these people who normally would have nothing to do with each other and uh, would not be natural political allies, uh, and we just stick them together so they can't escape. And they... Uh, <laughs> And they get to know each other, and they get to understand each other in a um, a non-caricature way. Uh, and the really fascinating result about that is that virtually none of them change their political opinions, but virtually all of them change their opinions about their political opponents and how they arrive at their positions and their legitimacy within a debate, which is important. Um, so that's my job. That's what, what we do. Um, I come to that from a, I've really spent my whole life uh, since I was a teenager in some way or other uh, working with or trying to understand government. Uh, I started out in political campaigns. I went to law school, uh, and I became uh, an attorney for, uh, doing litigation. But then uh, I, became, I went, moved to the U.S. Senate. I was a staff person um, trying to work on policy. Uh, later, I was an attorney doing um, political law, essentially the rules for politics. And I was a policy advocate, also known as a lobbyist, uh, for part of that time. Um, and, and now my job is to try to help us do politics in a more constructive and useful way that makes things work better. Um, part of the time, part of my experience just in this, this year plus of doing this job um, is to see what's going on at a local level in a variety of Virginia cities um, and to get to know a little bit this unique animal of the Virginia independent city, uh, which is, uh, it's, it, that it's been described here the way government works in an independent city uh, with a council system that, as we have, um, but it's hard. It's hard uh, for that kind of a system uh, to exert authority um, over its own affairs in some cases for the reasons that have been described. And um, it's, uh, it's a real challenge for Virginia that's partic particularly unique to Virginia. Um, as we welcome to our programs these people who are involved in um, their political actors of some kind, they may be office holders, they may be aspiring office holders, staff people, political campaign sort of people, just volunteers, um, uh, they, they have some things in common. They generally are in, interested in doing something good, trying to get things done, accomplish things, right wrongs, um, accomplish very practical things. For those who are uh, actually elected office holders, when they arrive, they, they bring with them a set of beliefs. 
Um, and that's, that's their business that develops over a lifetime. And then they arrive, they take office, and now they're presented with duties and responsibilities. And there's not always a consensus about what those are. Um, they also confront something that's a little murkier, which is a, a set of norms, if you will, about how somebody in that job should do that job. And um, what does it mean to really represent your constituents? And how, how broadly do you find that? Um, and then they're, they're faced with political incentives, and a lot of them um, are not ready for that. At this moment in our politics, particularly in our statewide and national politics, those incentives uh, have grown a little bit perverse. Uh, there's an ebb and flow of that in history. But right now you, you hear a lot about polarization uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but the way we do primaries, the way we do elections, uh, a lot of the incentives are not to go to the middle and make agreements and accomplish things. The, a lot of the incentives are to vilify the opposition. Um, and create stark lines uh, so your people turn out and the other ones won't. Um, and it's a challenge for people uh, at any level of government. It's especially a challenge, I think, at the local city level because uh, cities deal with generally with very practical problems in very real terms that are very real in the lives of their constituents because they, whatever it is, they drive past it every day. And... Um, so that's uh, sort of the perspective I've gained in this in this job uh, about city government, and then moving to Charlottesville uh, permanently just in the last 15 months, and seeing uh, everything that's unfolded here, um, it's been an education. Uh, I think I'll stop there and maybe we move on. <laughs> We're going to start with the uh, two elected officials in the middle. And we thought it would be interesting to have you talk about, um, and Mr. Barber, you already talked about the nod that you gave, but I, I'm, I'm sure there was more to it. And I wonder if you could talk about what you both um, were thinking about when you decided to seek a position on council and what was the climate that caused you to think your particular skills would be useful to Charlottesville at that time. Back in 1954, um, 55, I worked with NECP to get African American re registered to vote. We would vote to run against the bird machine. We were more concerned about the bird machine than the local election, realizing that if you can overcome the bird machine in our little section of town, it will have an effect on the city. So we got work for many years with the ACP African American to vote. In 1968, I repeat myself, African American ran and he lost by like 300 votes. And I was very involved in the city, in the government, I'm sorry, in the, in the NECP and in the community, things to trying to work on the, the limited ability we had during segregation time. So we wanted to change and they needed some uh, African American to run city council. And I didn't feel I was, I thought, hey, you need to get a, a teacher or a minister or somebody. I said, no, we want you. Well, like I said, I wasn't sure I was the person. But I'd been involved in a lot of organizations trying to make changes under the health segregation rules. So, I, like I said, they came to my house to ask me to run. I was, 
I didn't think I could do the job. You know, and I was, I was so tired. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and, and they took it to be a yes, so I ran and I won. And the first thing on city council was to make changes because we was functioning under the segregation system all the time. So we had two, Africa, two Democrats on council, one Democrat on council, Fife and I ran. So then we had a majority, then we could make some changes. And we made all of the changes you see today, back during 1970. Yes, a lot of changes were made by other councils, but we set the groundwork. We made the changes that you see good things happen today. I see Councilman Gilman back there. He was part of that. We were the beginning of the changes that we have today. Like the bus service, when I went on city council, the old council had decided to build a swimming pool in Penn Park, one large swimming pool. Now, well, that sounds good, okay? But African-American and poor whites, how are you going to get there with their transportation? So our first thing was to do is say, we're going to cancel that and build local swimming pools so African-Americans and those who want to come could get the swimming pool. That's one of the first things we done. We also realized that city manager, was a, he was a good guy, I guess. He'd been there for like 32 years. He was a segregation. He was a conservative. So we had to make changes again. We elected a city manager who was in tune with changes for the city. And we, the bus service I'm telling you about, it was a private owned, and they were limited in their um, um, service, and the city had to donate money to them each year. And we changed that. That swimming put the schools, everything I've said again, we changed the zoning so African Americans would not be just stuck into the core of the city. I personally tried for two or three years to buy a house in the white community. And they told me that, you know, I could, yes, Mr. Barber, yes, come on over. I would look, oh, I'm sorry, no, we can't sell to you. I got to the point I would call. I wouldn't even go. I was called and say, you sell on, on free market. Uh, yes. No, I'm sorry. Somebody got it. I went, to, that's a permanent lawyer in Charlottesville who was the Commonwealth attorney for Alma County. He had his wife, I'm a nurse. His wife is a nurse at UVA, and she said, call my husband, who was a lawyer, Go to his house over Rubber Avenue. My wife and I, we went, and all of a sudden, people looked out, and they clo closed their curtain, and he told them, sorry, we can't sell it to you. We tried and tried. I bought a lot in Elmar County, because I couldn't find a place in Charlottesville. And on my way to my lot in Elmar County, a house we passed on Sunset Avenue, we knocked on the door, they said, she'll sell to us. That had ended up in Charlottesville, rather than Elmar County. I was part of the racist change, the segregation back during the time. We went to a restaurant on Cherab at the corner. Everybody went to the corner. Back during the time, we were having a picnic. We got $25 for food. We go to get the food, to go inside and get the food. The guy said, you can't come in. Wait a minute. We ordered the food. That look, if you go back today on Cherry on, on, on that street, by the corner, Fifth Street, there's a little things right today, a little thing for the African Americans to get their meal through the, uh, the window. It's still there today. They would give us $25 for food through the little window, so we counseled the food. They weren't very happy. I've been part, I was on the bus, I worked at the university for 45 years. 
I just ride the bus at night, so I had to sit in the back like everyone else. Sometimes the bus drivers would come up front, nobody just the two of us on the bus. I was part of this segregation that we suffered, and I was happy to be part of the change when I was on council, do everything. Charlottesville City Council, the, the Charlottesville management used to have picnic at Fry Springs uh, swimming pool. Every year, they would go have a nice picnic. Before African Americans involved, before I got involved. Every year they have the Christmas thing at Fried Spring. But all of a sudden, I went, but I couldn't join. So wait a minute, something wrong with that picture. So we stopped. I said, we can't do it. No way we can do that. Give them money to support them, and we couldn't have to become a member. I went to the, um, my daughter went to the swimming pool at, um, at um, right off Tree Avenue. Um, Uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's open now. It's, well, nevertheless, and they said she couldn't come in. My daughter went to the swimming pool at, um, that's it, that's it. And they said she couldn't come in because she only like 10 or 12. So they left. The people who took her left. They came back home. We have been exposed to a lot of the races of my, because of my age. The city manager asked me that I would get permit to carry a gun for my own protection. My family got threats. They got calls of the telephone because I was up front and trying to make changes with the city of the thing that was going on. It was my council, was the guilt part of that, who made all of these changes that some of the people, I'm not sure the Democratic Republican, who was conservative, regardless of the political politi uh, thing, but we got threats because of what was going on. But I would not back down. I done what I thought was right and fair, and I'm happy about it. Thank you. I can be much briefer and say I was a beneficiary of what the leadership that Charles showed and others in the community on council and not on council. By the time I came along about 15 years later, um, I, I had been to graduate school in urban and environmental planning. I had three small children, and I was working as a mediator facilitator, which means you can't ever express your own views. And I was drawn to the notion of being able to be actively involved in my community. I, I, I always have been dedicated to making places better places to live for my own family and other families. And so... Um, I found really a, a very wonderful thing at that time in the Democratic Party in Charlottesville because it was a thoroughly integrated group of people in Charlottesville, which really very few situations were. And so it allowed me really to become part of this community. My, my motivation, I've always said, I'm kind of a good government person. I did not see major problems in my community 
the way Charles did and feel that I had a role to change them. So I felt like I joined a group of people who really cared about Charlottesville, wanted to make it a better place for everybody. I, I really cherished then and now the opportunity to get to know people of all kinds in this community and feel like I maybe could make some difference um, in their lives. So that, that was what motivated me, and uh, it was a great experience for me. So, Rich, what would you say is the, is the most um, biggest frustration, the most vexing thing that people have with our structure of government? What do you think is that one Oh, oh boy. <laughs> the biggest uh, with, with this structure. I think there's, a, there's, and we've mentioned some of this, there's some um, confusion about authority. That is about who is responsible for what. And um, what's, what's great about uh, um, recent events and the engagement with uh, city council is folks learning about who's actually uh, uh, running for office, what they stand for, what, they're, what they bring to the table. That's really important. Um, uh, local government elections tend to be very low turnout across the country. That's because people think, eh, that doesn't really matter. Uh, I think around here we understand that it does matter a lot and that people will engage, uh, and that's a, that's a start. That's really important. But I think part of it is uh, a frustration, I would think, with um, – not quite understanding the lines of authority, first of all. And then second of all, I think some of the limitations on the authority, the capacity to do, to do certain things. And then I think more recently there's been, um, I think, frustration with we have substantive disagreements about certain kinds of policies. And we are in a place, I think, sometimes at, at city council where uh, folks feel shut out of the, the, the political process or the 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 discourse that is taking place um, and um, and their only response is sometimes to shout a little louder and that is understandable that shouting a little louder to, to be heard so I think one has to address the reasons for the shouting a little louder and then figure out what kind of processes and discourse we can engage in so that we can constructively move forward. That's hard to do uh, when you have substantive disagreements. And we've got to figure out when people lose issues and pe when people win issues on the council, uh, the winners and the losers have to be able to then sometimes switch sides, right? You can't win everything and you can't lose everything. And so part of that is to figure out how, how to, how to uh, return to a sense of compromise and forward-lookingness. But I think there is some frustration with the limits of authority and who's exercising it. And a question for Mr. Walls, and then we'll turn it over to audience questions next. Bitsy touched on this when she described um, the challenge of, of thinking about uh, a group of people coming with a concern to council, and then council has to make a decision in the best interest of all citizens. So I assume that's something, you know, Sorensen is instructing candidates and, and people thinking about service, that they have to make those decisions in the best interest of everyone. But what forces have you observed that can make that difficult? Politics. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, that's it, but I'll elaborate. Um, 
The uh, I think uh, in, my, in my observation, uh, just about everybody from right to left, um, whatever it was that brought them into politics, has this idea that they're going to do good and make things better and represent people. Um, I think they also have sometimes honest disagreements or, or honest differences in the understanding of what the people want and need. Um, and that's that's all fine. Uh, but then they face uh, a couple of things I mentioned were norms and incentives. Um, so there are norms. Politics is done a certain way. It's been done this way forever, you might hear, or um, been done this way forever. It needs to change. Um, and I think when people are new to politics, they feel often bound by those things, even if they're not terribly uh, comfortable with them. Um, and sometimes they get used to it, and on we go. And things are the way they've always been. Um, then the incentives, the you know, you, a lot of people who run for office, they enjoy being elected. They like to be reelected. Uh, <clears throat> it does not always follow that the thing that is most likely to help you get reelected is the thing that best serves the needs of the greatest number of people in your district. Uh, or the city you represent. It's, this is all starker at the state and federal level where the district lines are are, are drawn very clearly uh, and you know where your district begins and ends and you represent that district and not any other part of the state, not any other part of the country. Uh, and so it's different in a, in a city council system like the one we have. But um, everybody represent, you know, everybody has their base, everybody has their coalition that got them over the, 50% mark to be elected, and they they want to make those people happy. It's it's a natural incentive. Um, I think you, you see it now and again, but rare is the uh, uh, elected official who's facing re-election doesn't consider those things. Um, you know, if you're if we're all lucky, those those forces converge pretty well with what is uh, in the best interest of everybody, um, but they don't always. So. Uh, and then there's the – everybody knows who their coalition is. Everybody knows who roughly is and isn't voting for them in, in broad strokes. Uh, and the temptation, of course, is to concentrate on the people who are for you. Um, as politics, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of endemic to the process. I think it, we have in recent years seen more and more forces moving people away from the consensus building, uh, away from – uh, what you might call a uh, a, a middle strategy uh, if, if your objective is to win. Um, and politicians are often served by appealing to the um, the people with who, who provide the campaign money or they, the people who are the most motivated and likely to show up to vote. Um, and that's that tension is sort of inescapable in, in the way we do politics. Um, and I think, you know, in the next session, I guess we're going to talk about alternative forms of city government. Um, but even uh, if you look at the state and federal level, uh, you know, these well-established forms of our constitutional republic, um, there's an ebb and flow in those and how the institutional forces uh, provide, create incentives for, for Political uh, official, political candidates and, and office holders to uh, to move one way or the other. Um, right now, we're at a moment where a lot of those create polarization, and the, the way to win is to make your folks happy and make the other folks stay home. 
Um, it and that's generally at odds with uh, a substantive effort to just consider what is absolutely the best thing for the greatest number of people. Okay. So we're going to um, ask you for your questions now. And Ann Russell Gregory on Charlottesville Tomorrow's staff has the microphone. So if you have a question, raise your hand and um, tell us who you'd like to direct the question to and tell us your name. Um, my name is Sherry Kraft. Um, I'm not sure who I want to address this to, so you guys decide that. But um, it, it seems to me, well, first of all, I want, to, I want to thank Mr. Barber for being here and for reminding us of the courage and the leadership that you um, exercised back in a day when it really wasn't easy at all. So thank you so much for that. Uh, my question has to do with the uh, relationship between the city of Charlottesville and Albemarle County. And um, it occurs to me that right now there are a lot of tensions in this relationship, um, whether it be about where the courts should be located, um, about the revenue sharing agreement, and um, even who makes the rules for Ragged Mountain Reservoir. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm wondering... Um, if you could reflect on uh, just the, this relationship and um, perhaps uh, times in the past when it worked better or it, or it didn't work very well and what you think it will take to have the most effective kind of working relationship between the two bodies. Well, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll take a, a a quick start at it and say that uh, I don't know that I heard the word dismay from you, Sherry, but I I'm actually dismayed about the situation with regard to a number of these areas where we don't seem to be working as effectively with people in the county. Um, I, I did, in thinking about this, remember that we had a very strong entity during the time I was on council called the Planning and Coordinating Council, which included the county and the city and the university. I think it was an unusually effective time for that, but it meant it, it, we met, I, I think, quarterly. It was the president of the university and the mayor and the chair of the board of supervisors, and we worked on a number of different issues. This was kind of uh, above, if you will say, the particular things happening with the water and sewer authority or other. We have shared services but we have lost some ground there. The county used to buy fire services from us, and now they've increasingly are doing that for themselves. Um, I've been particularly discouraged for us to get in lawsuits with the county uh, about, for instance, the Ragged Mountain situation. I mean, I think for us to be suing each other, I don't know whether this was clear in my remarks, but I, I think many of us know, and maybe at the next session on the future, we can, we can talk about it. We went through a whole question of whether we should revert and become part of Albemarle, and that, that was a whole question, and many people don't agree with that. But it was motivated by a concern of the problems created by independent cities. So I, I'm not close enough to way it's happening now to know why we don't have the forums we need. But I honestly feel, if anything, frankly, our entities have been becoming closer politically on the uh, kind of the continuum that you're talking about, Tom, um, we should be able to work well together on these. So um, I, I, I think it just it continues to be a difficult thing to do within our system of government. 
I just want to say that back in the 70s, Charlottesville was going to annex northern part of the Albemarle County that the ball located up to up to where um, the bridge where uh, the um, the hotel the um, Double Tree. We were almost had it until the Elmar County Supervisor um, Chairman he when they surveyed and they found up there was something wrong and we couldn't annex. So we were going to so we worked out a deal to not annex and the county would pay the city X number of dollars for X number of years and as you can read in the paper now it began to become an issue for them. We almost had this fashion mall in the city of Charlottesville. They managed of the campus Charlottesville people build the fashion mall in Charlottesville, Virginia, down by Kmart. We almost had it, but it would have been near Greenbrier. And council members had friends, all came to council, Porter council like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Nobody wanted it in their backyard. Well, I said then, Charlottesville would get the dust and the pollution from cars going to the mall, and we will suffer from it, from the revenue we will, we will miss. And today, that happened to be true. I believed that Charlottesville should have the opportunity to do what was best for the city, not worry about the neighborhood in the past, when you will build something in Africa, America, African-American neighborhood that was never in the words and things said, but people was afraid because it was close to Greenbrier. Council this day, like yesterday, need to take a stand for the best for the city and not for your intervention, for your friends, or what you think is good, for the community that you, you elected to serve. So I, I would just say um, these interlocal conflicts are uh, are are incredibly common. <laughs> it's not just Charlottesville and Albemarle. We sort of have a classic. In fact, for a small city, we sort of have a classic city suburban dynamic in this place. So we have a microcosm of lots of bigger cities who also have a city suburban. And what happened, uh, and these stories tell this, is in the 70s and 80s, there was there were pushes to annex. Annexation was fairly liberal in most states, uh, uh, and in western states it still is to some degree. And then at a certain point, um, when counties started to uh, exercise more general local government power because they had more resources and more capacity to do so, they started saying, we don't want to be part of the city. We don't want to be annexed to the city. And those are the annexation fights of the 70s and 80s. Happen in California, they happen in New Jersey, they happen in Florida, they happen all over the, all over the country. So the annexation fight was part of that context uh, in which suddenly uh, in, that, in that setting, poorer cities, Charlottesville being the poorer uh, neighbor, were seeking to annex uh, a land in order to gain taxable resources. And one of the problems with our local government structure here and elsewhere is that local governments compete for tax, uh, to, for rateables. 
that's a problem because it's a zero. It turns out to be a zero-sum game. So we compete for the Fashion Square Mall, but then they put it over just over the border, right? And they get all the tax revenue. We get some of the costs, and vice versa. We compete for for certain kinds of economic development to 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 locate in Charlottesville, and the costs are are suddenly shared. So this is silly. <laughs> It's very hard to stop, though, as a structural matter. It's really hard to stop. Now, one thing about the revenue sharing is, uh, uh, in that context, Charlottesville did give up a lifetime of revenue from particular property, property that would have been annexed and part of the tax base. Uh, uh, revenue sharing is a form of regional government, and one of the things that uh, 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 good government reformers have been talking about for 50 years is improving and promoting a regional form of government. And that means cooperation for services so that we don't duplicate and have high taxes. It also means sharing revenue across borders, uh, depending on uh, the relative wealth of the particular jurisdictions. Now, what has happened recently, and more recently in the last 15, 20 years, is Charlottesville has gotten wealthier. Um, uh, and, and that's been part of an urban resurgence that has happened all over the world, which is cities have been doing better, particularly since the 70s and 80s when there was a great deal of decline. That decline has reversed to some extent. We've seen it in Charlottesville with property values going up, more people wanting to live downtown, all those things, the downtown mall being robust. But it turns out there's still uh, a great deal uh, of need in the city of Charlottesville. The the, the poor people of the region tend to be concentrated in Charlottesville, not necessarily in the county. The county tends to be richer. And so uh, uh, there are some, still some issues of scarcity. And those problems uh, uh, create these tensions. Uh, the way you fix this is you, you have to think in terms of regional economic and social welfare, not individual county or city social welfare. And the way you do that is you have to think about what the benefits are of having a robust city like Charlottesville in a county like this. You have to think about what the benefits are of the county and the county amenities are for a place like Charlottesville. And the region, as many people say, the region is the, is the, appropriate, uh, is the appropriate unit. Now, how do you get that politically to happen when folks are being elected by their own <laughs> Jurisdictions and districts is hard. It's hard for folks not to act parochially in the political sense. But one of the things that can be communicated is that we need the folks in the county. They need us. We need to work together. More questions? We're not doing a break. I'm sorry, but if you, there are restrooms right outside if anyone needs to step out. Yes, hi. Um, my name is Shawnee West, and I'm not sure exactly who this would go to. You also, you decide. I'm very concerned, as many of us are, about the open carry and the lack of gun control in this state. And I know recently that David Toscano brought a bill to the state legislature, which, you know, hopefully was, um, could have been applied to Charlottesville and any other city so that we could not have open carry guns in parks and in other 
public places. So now that has been um, stopped in the legislature. I am personally very frustrated. I don't know where to go with this, and I'm sure I am not alone. So I don't know what the next step is. Do we have to wait until we next year when we go back to the state legislature, or is there anything else that we can do as a city or as a county to make some changes in this very important issue? Uh, so this is a good example of the, where uh, uh, there might be local preferences and, and it may be that Charlottesville would pick a different rule about uh, gun control than the state has. And this is a great example of what I was talking about, which is preemptive legislation. You have to change the law in Richmond in order to get local laws. Uh, in my mind, that doesn't make a great deal of sense. I think different localities have different needs, and they certainly have different different preferences as to regulation of guns. But of course, guns is a is a hugely political issue, um, and uh, in many states, you have this this uh, issue of state legislatures having more permissive gun laws when localities would like to have less one, less so. Um, that is a political question that has to be resolved at the state level at this moment. Uh, in my dreams, I, believe, I, I feel like uh, we could have a home rule movement. We could rise up together as a group and go down to Richmond and demand that they give us more ability to, lead, to, to, to govern ourselves and that we would all do this together and they would see the light and they would, they would <laughs> adopt a home rule amendment to the Constitution or something like that uh, or at least uh, reject the preemptive le uh, language of their, of their legislation. I, I think we should do that, frankly, but that's a long-term strategy uh, to pursue more home rule for localities. I think that's something we want to put in our heads as a political matter. In terms of the specific gun laws, there's not a ton you can do except operate through the political processes down there. You have to elect a, a, a elections matter, as they say. And what, one thing you can't do, and this is, I think, quite important, I said this before, is demand that the city council do something different with guns because they, in fact, can't. And so there is sometimes an anger, and then we go to the city council, and they in fact, can't regulate the guns in the way that you want them to. And that's, I think, should be frustrating. I think whatever side you are on the gun issue, I think local control is better than, than central. Uh, let me just comment, if I may. I'm not sure. It's, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. But if you apply for a permit, if you put limitation on that permit and not bring weapons, I don't see why that wouldn't work. Uh, I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the question. If, if they will have another parade on March on, uh, in July, this coming July 11 and 12, if the city should give a permit to, to use the park with limitation, no weapon, I don't know why that wouldn't work. All right, next up over here. My name is Matthew Field, and I was wondering, so you said about how the state had been taking away the money for schools 
as well as for the homing. I was wondering what's been done to resolve this issue. Well, that's a very good question, and I have a feeling we are going to keep getting back to the word politics here in terms of answering your question. But uh, during the 60s and 70s in terms of housing, the federal government felt they had a larger role to play in putting money into helping to house people. And we had a lot of housing programs that were eligible to people all over our country, and we built a lot of affordable housing and we continued to subsidize rent for people who needed it. And because over time we elected people who did not believe in that that much, then we stopped giving as much money to that. And that's still where we are right now. We give less and less money to our housing programs and it leaves the housing we have with less money to maintain it and it means we don't build the new housing units. So that's the housing story. That's largely a federal government responsibility, and there are more federal taxes than there are local taxes. On schools, it's happened more at the state level, but the same story. We elected people who did not feel as strongly about putting money into the schools, and therefore, in order to keep the programs we want in the schools, we have to spend more local money. That's a problem for us, and it's also a problem for a lot of other cities and counties because we actually do have more money than some places, and we can put some of that money back into our schools. Some communities cannot. So really, the answer to the question of what we should do about that is every time there's an election, we should ask people, how, whether, whatever level of government they're running for, how do you feel about putting money into schools, and how do you feel about putting money into housing? And we should... If we believe in it, we should elect and support the people who will put more money into it. I would just, uh, can I just say one thing about uh, housing funds? That's exactly right, the story. But the, there are lots of disputes about how you appropriately provide housing for folks. Um, one of the things about public housing is that while it was funded initially, then it had uneven funding even immediately thereafter. And so there was a thought that public housing was a failure, but in part it was a failure of consistent funding across the time. Now, that's been consistently cut back for, for now a long time, so this is not anything new. One of the things we're facing in Charlottesville with accelerating housing costs right in this region is that uh, suddenly that that crisis is 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 more acute but it's been an acute problem for a long time the other thing to just to say about that very quickly is that the housing uh, market is a regional market so even if Charlottesville built a ton of housing it's again a built-out kind of place there's not a lot of room necessarily Many of the policies that our surrounding counties have adopted, their zoning policies, are in fact more important uh, in terms of actually producing lots of housing in this region. So we are, are appropriately concerned about this issue, but in fact, uh, even if uh, the city of Charlottesville did a great deal on the housing front and, and has made efforts in that, in that regard, the, the surrounding community is still going to suffer from uh, uh, housing shortages because this is a popular area. Uh, uh, housing prices have gone up, and they have particular policies that restrict the kinds of housing we can build. 
My name's Emerald Young, and Mr. Walls, could you uh, say how the Sorensen Institute is funded, if it's national or only in Virginia? And what can local governments do to protect themselves from corruption, infiltration, which is often done by compromise, uh, intimidation, and bribery? Uh, we have... Uh, Transparency, that's one mechanism, uh, but can you, and perhaps limiting the amount that can be contributed to campaigns, that's another potential mechanism, but does your institute instruct leaders on how to deal with corruption and infiltration? Thanks for the question. Uh, to the first part of your question, uh, we're entirely privately funded. We don't get money from the state. Uh, we don't get money from the university itself. We get money from private donors wherever we can find them, SorensenInstitute.org. <laughs> uh, on the second question, uh, I think your question implicates a few things. One is uh, kind of a values question. Another is legal, and the other is legislative. Uh, so the last piece about money in politics is entirely a legislative question, uh, a policy question, and I think if you if you would like to see greater constraints there, that you really have to work on your your legislators, uh, who you know, as, as I talked about before, have various incentives on this issue, which may be different from yours. Um, the uh, in the case of actual corruption. Um, that is the responsibility of, of law enforcement and prosecutors uh, to deal with. But let me tell you what the Sorensen Institute does. Our courses, our programs are, are fairly practical, but they all have an ethical component. And uh, it's usually the first thing we do when our, the new people arrive for one of our programs is we, we go through certain exercise about, about ethics. Um, in our high school program, uh, w uh, in which I am one of the teachers, um, we do these sort of mock sessions where we pretend everybody's a member of the General Assembly and there's some question facing them. Um, and I will often try to uh, manipulate the scenario a little bit so that to create an ethical challenge to them. Um, oh, you're just a couple of votes short of passing this wonderful bill, which is really going to be good for your district and really going to be good for your career. But you've got to persuade a couple of people over here that this number that's 35 is really 45. You know, fudge a little bit. And I'm happy to report that, that they don't, generally, they don't take the bait. Uh, and that's a very simple uh, example of some of the things we do. But the, uh, we are really interested in cultivating uh, ethical players in Virginia's politics, uh, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it makes politics work better. Um, and it makes politicians better equipped to resist those perverse incentives I was describing earlier. Uh, remember, I say the first thing I arrive with is their own beliefs. And if those are solid in the right way, I think you'll have better representation, uh, regardless of ideology. Um, the uh, analogy I sometimes use is a stew, uh, that, the, that Virginia's politics is a stew sitting on, the, on a low heat on the stove and what we've been trying to do for 25 years now is to drop in good ingredients um, and make a good stew. But the um, so that I think that that's it in a nutshell. Those those three avenues. 
I think this young lady has had her hand up a little while. Hi, um, my name is Chisu Tenzin. I'm a senior at Almoral High School and actually just recent graduate of the High School Leaders Program from Sorensen Institute. So, um, but thank you for all for coming and speaking to us about local government. My question follows a recent program I did hosted by Dr. Douglas at the Jefferson School, which was called New Gen Peace Builders. And at our program, we learned and talked a lot about peacemaking and diversity. So one issue that a lot of students who did the program felt was that here in Charlottesville, we claim to be very diverse, and by representation, we are. But in practice, it seems that we tend to stick with people we're most comfortable with, either socioeconomically or racially. And so as a local government official, what is the role of local government in handling these types of social issues, or what can we do? Thank you. This is not fair. Uh, I'm not a local government official. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was fast. Um, uh, Obviously, it's a challenging question. I, I think that you heard from Charles some of the proactive work to get more diversity at the council level, the people did that. I can tell you that that is an, as a proactive effort in our community. There's also, there are proactive efforts to get some of the diversity that's in our community represented on advisory bodies and various other kinds of community groups that participate in local government. Uh, there is, there, there are links to the schools. Um, the city government per se does not run the schools. Um, the, the schools have a separate board, as you know, that, that's responsible for them, but they are often span, sponsoring forums and venues. You probably know that the city of Charlottesville had a, a, something called a dialogue of, on race a number of years ago, which was an attempt to get conversations going amongst different people. You heard me say that for some years the Democratic Party was an excellent forum for diverse conversations. I know after August 12th there was a gathering, a, a meal at the Jefferson School where people came together and the idea was you rotated from table to table. So I, I will say that I believe this is a, a community with goodwill in that regard, but I also believe it is very challenging. And so I think that the, the methodology, methodology that we have used is still the right one, which is that if you are active in any kind of an endeavor, you can play a leadership role in trying to bring greater diversity to that. You can do outreach um, to try to recruit people to come in. You can also reach out by going to where people are. You can can work with young people who we often say are an easier, you know, it's an easier threshold. They more naturally do it. So I, I don't have any magic bullets, but I, I do think that um, it, it's just something that you have to take individual leadership on if you can. I would like to have a brief comment on that. During my council time, I tried so hard to get African to come down to council meeting. What happened today, it's good to see, look at city council meeting, there are a lot of African Americans today, but one of the problems is about what the young lady said. It depends on the issue as white people come out. But all members of the city 
regardless who you are, should come to some council meeting, whether it affect you or not, because it's them tomorrow, today, it might be you tomorrow. So should go and support the things that are best for the city, whether it affect you directly or not. So we all should get involved and stay involved. I want to let the uh, actual elected officials have their say, but um, it's a discipline, right? It's, it's, a, it's a believing in something. Um, it's easy, as you say. Uh, just I'll stick with people that I'm familiar with, that I'm comfy with, who agree with me. Um, that's easy. It's pleasant. Um, and then it's a discipline, and maybe it's a discipline that's, that's complemented with some curiosity uh, to just get in the habit. Go across the room um, to that person who is saying the thing that you don't agree with or who you think maybe holds the view you don't agree with and just ask them. Uh, it's really something, even in, the, even in a heated political debate, uh, where you walk up to somebody and say, instead of saying, you're crazy or you're wrong, say, why do you believe that? And the cool thing is most of the time they'll tell you. And now you're getting somewhere. Um, and then it's a discipline and just try to sort of internalize as a value the, the equal value of every person, right? Everybody, every, you could say every human being or in a civic sense every citizen has equal value, has an equal right to be heard. Uh, and you have to internalize the discipline of acting like you believe that. Um, it's hard sometimes, uh, but it leads to progress. Um, it's, it serves your self-interest in some sense, even though it's uncomfortable occasionally. So um, think of it as a discipline, uh, like any other discipline, uh, whether it's your studies or going to the gym or whatever it is. Uh, and, I, and I really think you have to internalize that or you're just sort of on your way to polarization and frustration and not getting a lot of stuff done. Hi, my name is Anne-Marie Hohenberger. I'm the president of the Ridge Street Neighborhood Association. And as a couple of you have mentioned, we have a lot of residents in Charlottesville who not only want to have their voices heard, but really want to make change. And it's hard to figure out how to get started in that process for people who are not already part of the machinery. Uh, there's an overwhelming number of public meetings and places to go and people to talk to, and it can be hard to get up to speed and get informed on all the issues. So what I'd like to ask to the whole panel is, what could the city be doing better to give residents access to the process in a way that they can actually take access? And what's the first step for residents who do want to get started? First I'll say, Anne-Marie, I look forward to meeting with you in about a week. <laughs> Um, th these are actually hard questions. Um, city government, I think, has gotten considerably more complicated over time. So I, I think the answer, though, that I would give you is the one that it seems to me has been the experience of, I mean, I, I started where you did, active in my neighborhood. And I think you can't uh, 
get up to speed and be successful on every issue. So I think my personal advice to anybody who wants to get started is to figure out what you care most about and then to figure out how you go about identifying what is happening there. And there are, there are a number of ways to do that. It may be that Brian and his new job can be helpful. I can tell you, I still use these strategies. I'm very, you might have been able to tell, I'm very interested in the affordable housing issue right now. I'm interested in all the complexities of it, the things Rich talked about. So I, you know, I'm experienced at this, so I can scan and see when the city's having a meeting where they're talking about this, or I can track what the ad housing advisory committee does, or I can look at a council agenda and see if they're doing something about that. And, you know, I'm, I will just say I'm the kind of person that can watch that part of the city council meeting. I don't want to seem insensitive to how varied we are because not everybody by a long shot is going to do that. You can and people do contact individual council members or contact somebody you can find out from a staff perspective or in the community is working on these things. If it's a neighborhood assistant, issue we have an association of neighborhoods so to me it would you learn by doing so you pick what you're most motivated to know about you accept that it will take time and energy because it does and then you track that and you let people know you're interested and if there is some kind of a task force or an advisory body or anything you sit in on it and then maybe you put your name on you have no idea how easy it is to get appointed to a city <laughs> board and commission so if there's something you're interested in, give it a try. And there's no better way to learn than by doing. And so, so I think there's no magic to it, but I think you've just got to zero in on it. Anybody does, and you've got to pick your avenues. So. I just say there's, there has been some uh, movements towards a participatory budgeting process, which is uh, one way that lots of cities, this city included, I think, has some idea of a pilot project to get folks involved in actually sitting down with some numbers and making some decisions as a community about what, what we spend money on. That's tricky because it's hard to uh, plan multiple years in those kinds of settings. They start small, but that's that's one kind of mechanism that that takes place in these things. And I, you know, my experience was with just uh, observing Charlottesville city government is fairly open. There's a fairly uh, we are not. I, I wouldn't say that you know compared to some other places, we're not a machine town in the sense that there's one entrenched set of folks. There is sort of one party that tends to, to, but that's not always the case. <laughs> but it's not a machine in the sense that you see machines where there's a 30 year, the mayor has been there for 30 years and you just, there's no way to sort of access it. I think there is some, it's a, it's a more open government from, from again, from, from my perspective. I'd like to comment quickly and say is that present your idea to city council. Hopefully you get picked to speak. I'm saying they have a lot of system there that they'll pick certain members or numbers to speak. So I just hope you get the opportunity to present out there to city council. Did you have a question? Good evening. My name is Anthony I'm a member of Believers and Achievers. My question goes to you, bro. Because I am 
60 years old. I've been incarcerated practically all of my life until I got into my 20s. Since I came home, I met Miss Holly Edwards, part of um, Believers and Achievers. And being a part of that program, I accomplished a lot of things since I've been home that I'm successful and happy about myself for doing because at one time I thought I couldn't do them. And now I'm helping other ex-offenders come home and try to be productive in the community. But why there's not no say-so or funding for the help ex-offenders to come home and be positive than say you come home from incarceration and you have to really put your mindset on saying this is what I'm going to do and get it done and then saying man I tried to do it this way I'm going back to the old way and you find yourself in a recycle mode of conservation society conservation society and I believe our group started to try to break that cycle but since Miss Holly Mead passed away we haven't been doing anything and I've confronted City Council about what are y'all going to do to help ex-offenders be more positive in the community. And I didn't really get any kind of positive answer of what they were doing. We're trying now to rebuild Chivas and Believers right now. We're looking for a president and secretaries and all that. We, we're working on it again. I'm just saying that I think that the city itself, since they say this is a city of second chances, should look at the opportunity for training and skills that can be offered to us so that we could be productive and could find, you know, housing. Because majority of the time when you come home from incarceration, if you burnt your family out, you have nothing. That's the type issue that council should be working on. Those type things that affect people personally. That's what it's lacking today. Council should be more concerned about things that this guy was talking about. Those are things that happen to most families, not all, but a lot of families. And we've had to recycle over and over. Prison that come out. That's a great idea. And I think it should follow up and somebody should, council should listen and take a stand and do something. I'll go back here. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Derek Brown. Um, thank you very much for your comments, and I want to cite the prior question, which was, I think, very important. And, in fact, the Fountain Fund is a new institution that was developed about two years ago, which I hope you guys can collaborate with in some way. But my question for the panel really is about, I look at you and I sort of say University of Virginia. Uh, we've got a town-gown sort of relationship here that we haven't talked about much. And I'm wondering if you could opine a little bit about the relationship of the university. The university has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. It is now largely privately funded, not state funded. Uh, big change. Um, we have relationships with the university where they're paying for some services. But as I understand it, and I could be wrong, there's no payment in lieu of taxes here. And um, there seems to be essentially a, a big asset resource in the community as expressed in all of you up there because you're here in part because of the university. Um, but what more could be done? 
so that's a great question. I mean, the town gown issues again is is a perennial uh, perennial problem. We really have three jurisdictions here. We have the university, the county, and the city. And um, again, the university is a state. Uh, the, uh, an institution of the Commonwealth, just like the city is, um, and it's its own jurisdiction in a lot of ways. I think the uh, things like housing pressure is in part because of increased student enrollment. The university has its own issues with Richmond in terms of the demands that the, the Commonwealth is making on the university, and they have their own underfunding issues frankly. Um, they are also the biggest employer, so there are issues uh, just in terms of what the economic basis of this community is obviously reliant on that employer. And the, uh, so many of the things that uh, one is thinking about in terms of the economic vitality of this community uh, turn on, on, on university uh, policy and decision making. Um, and that could be done better, that there could be, there could be better connections with that probably. Um, uh, I think there are currently. Um, for example, public safety. In the August 11th and 12th, there wasn't as much communication between the city police and the university police, and that could, that could be done better uh, uh, also. In terms of resources, I think there are resources in the university community that uh, could be drawn upon, and the question is how to best bring those resources to bear without the university imposing <laughs> It's, uh, it's kind of views or its own viewpoints. Many of us are in the university, but we're also citizens of Charlottesville or of Albemarle. And so we live here. This is our community. Uh, we have stakes in this community as well and interests. Um, but I think there, there may be, maybe it's through Sorensen or other avenues where we can, um, we can bring those, 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 ex that expertise to bear. I would just say that I echo the fact that without the University of Virginia, Charlottesville is not the city it is. And it's always important to acknowledge that, and we get huge benefits. At the same time, I think we'd all be unwise not to realize that this is a very large institution growing in our midst. And because of all the things we have talked about, with the finiteness of our boundaries, even with revenue sharing, we don't have much real estate. The university is growing uh, for relatively recently. They've been getting denser as opposed to moving out into our neighborhoods, but that won't last forever. So we, we, we have a tension there that is not going to go away. And I think we do benefit from, I mean, university expertise is loaned to various city activities and endeavors, but as you say, sometimes it brings with it criticism that it's ivory tower and it's not in touch with really where people are and what we want and need. So I think, although I, I don't, I'm, I'm not really good at fully seeing the future uh, of what could happen with regard to both our situation with the county and with the university, I think maybe because of my history, that we have simply got to invest more time and energy in really those connections. I think we are more interrelated than we acknowledge. I think our, our strengths in many instances come from each other, and I think our problems, I mean, it can go to the problem of folks coming back to the community from prison, to where a shopping center is located, to 
how do we get affordable housing? I mean, we are all together in this. And so I think if we can find ways to make those connections and then invest the energy in the communication and in understanding, much as you said, the way you do your opponent in a political race, not that we're opponents, but we need to understand what the driving factors are for all of us and, and really find ways to pursue more win-win combinations because it, it, we, we really do share this. It really is a regional and institutional situation. And though we're quite wedded now to our for current forms, they don't serve us all that well with regard to dealing with these issues that, that cross boundaries. And I didn't even mention the environment. So there you have it. We have uh, time for one more question. And while Ann Russell's moving the microphone, just a reminder that in two weeks we'll have part two of this session. And thanks to Andrea Douglas, it'll be at the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center. So February 25th from 2 to 4 p.m., we hope you can join us there as well. Sally Hi. Thomas. Yeah, Sally Thomas. I was in office for a number of years, and the longer I served, the more angry I got at the state. So I'm awfully glad that you've brought preemption into our vocabulary today. And my question is, uh, well, and, and to explain, lobbyists would far rather deal with a few state legislators than with every single city and county. And so they prefer to have many controls localized at the state or maybe that's the opposite of localized, but anyway, centered at the state. So is there any place in the whole United States where it has worked to have people opposing the preemption that is taking place generally at the state and also at the federal level, reducing what local governments can do? So there was a, uh, a historical home rule movement that take, took place again at the, 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 the at the beginning of the 20th century, and then again there was a re in the 1950s and 60s, which changed state constitutions from a Dillon's rule to a home rule structure. So in fact, we've seen that historically that there was movement to do that, and it it actually swept the country. Uh, most states now have some version of home rule. Now, the preemption resistance is only beginning, and in part that's because what happened in the last decade or so is cities started filling some of the space that was left over by the federal government. They were unable, the feds were unable to get anything done. They were polarized and continue to have some of that. that. And so also states, but <laughs> I say, <laughs> less somewhat. Uh, 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 and cities started filling in the gaps. So one of the things we saw was, for example, local minimum wage legislation, which everybody said cities can't do this. It's, it's just crazy. But the national government wasn't responsive. State governments weren't responsive. Cities pushed those local minimum wage laws. Um, that's an example of local uh, pushing local authority and doing something that cities hadn't done before. It was unusual for cities to enter into that kind of activity. But what we're seeing now is the backlash to that. So now lots of states have then come in and said, no, you can't have a local minimum wage or you can't have anti-discrimination laws or you can't have gun laws or you can't have certain kinds of laws. And we have a phenomenon, it's a political one, which is we have uh, uh, what I would say, blue cities and red states in a lot of places. And this is a political polarization that's spatial, too. It turns out we have 
We have sorted ourselves geographically, not just politically. And that creates this dynamic where you have progressive cities and more conservative state legislatures. So that has created this dynamic here and elsewhere. Uh, have, have, have cities successfully resisted that? Yes, we see examples of cities saying uh, uh, we don't want to be preempted. Some of this has taken place in high-profile examples. So North Carolina, there was the bathroom bill in Charlotte. You might remember that. Uh, the state legislature sought to preempt the anti-transgender, anti-discrimination law in the city of Charlotte. They were successful in that, but then there was a reaction, a political reaction to that. Using uh, uh, corporate actors came in at that level. That didn't result in Charlotte getting their their anti-discrimination law back, it did result in a compromise where the state withdrew its preemptive legislation. So some of this is just issue by issue politicking, which is we do not want to have you over, overwhelm our local laws in particular places, and you need allies to do that. Sometimes it's an ally in the governor's office who's, who might help you resist the legislature. Sometimes it's corporate allies in certain, in certain contexts. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there, there, as I said before, I think there needs to be an awareness that what you're fighting for is more local control, not necessarily a p particular issue, although people don't get as excited about local control as they do about their issues. And so it's hard to get people really excited about home rule. <laughs> They're excited about other things, but it's hard to get them excited about that. But if we, if you do, then, then maybe there's a, a sense that, well, we should stop all this centralization uh, to the legislature. Well, um, I've certainly learned a lot. I hope you all have too. Can we give a round of applause for our panelists? Um, before we end for the evening, though, I wanted to um, introduce Rosanna Benaguch from the City Registrar's Office, who's going to say a little bit of, about voting for us. Hi, I'm Rosanna Bencoach. I'm the voter registrar for the city of Charlottesville. Um, I want, first of all, I, I want to put in a plug for the city website, which is charlottesville.org. And if you go to the main page of the city website right now, you know those banner advertisements that flash by on the first page? There are surveys up right now asking for the citizens to, to weigh in on what they think the city's budget priorities should be and also on housing needs, land use, and transportation. Um, and there's also information on boards and commissions that they're looking for, looking for members to apply to, to be appointed to those. Uh, those are up right now. If, uh, I didn't see them on the mobile site, but if you go to the full site, you will see those ads. And if you need any information about voter registration, the city's voter registration information website is charlottesville.org slash vote. And absentee voting begins 46 days before ele each election. And thank you all for the very high turnout we have in the city of Charlottesville. Thank you. That's it. Thank you.